Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hash Talk, a podcast exploring the best of blockchain in Asia. I'm your host, Sankalp Shangari, and this is our open source attempt to bring you the latest news, narrative, and interviews with the best minds in blockchain and related technologies. So let's dive right in. Welcome to another episode of Hash Talk. Uh, we have a very special guest today, and her name is Pooja Sinha. Pooja is uh, one of the leading blockchain lawyers in Singapore. Uh, she is a partner at GLS Law. Uh, previously, she was with Linklaters and Clifford Chance and has been in Singapore for about 12 years, uh, working on equity and corporate debt, uh, restructuring, structuring, and a lot of uh, uh, ECM and DCM deals across the region. Uh, for the last uh, two to three years, Pooja has been actively involved in the blockchain space and, and is leading lawyer in, in uh, the securities token side of things and advising a host of blockchain companies globally uh, who want to set up a shop in Singapore or who are already established and want to grow and partner. So Pooja, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks, Ankur. Great, great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Great. We're very excited to have you because, uh, uh, you know, we've been looking forward to asking you a lot of difficult questions. Right. <laughs> so, 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 the, so just building up the pressure there. Sure, sure. No worries. <laughs> been there, done that for two years now. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Excellent. So, uh, uh, Pooja, Pooja, let's start. Uh, what has your experience been so far um, as a lawyer? How did you end up as a legal practitioner? And how did you end up in blockchain? Uh, and, and what are you doing today as a, as a legal prof professional? Sure, sure. Um, so I'll start at the very beginning. How did I end up as a lawyer? It's an existential question I think about a lot <laughs> on, on, on some dark days at 2 a.m. <laughs> when you're drafting documents. Um, so, you know, I grew up in India and I think, um, you know, at that time they were just, uh, uh, there was very much an expectation that you sort of go into one of these uh, uh, recognized profession, which at that time was uh, uh, being a doctor or an engineer or the newly sort of uh, introduced uh, um, regime to become, become a lawyer. So that's how I sort of, uh, sort of just stumbled in, having come from a family of engineers, uh, you know, just decided to sort of give it a shot and uh, you know ended up really enjoying my five-year law degree in India um, and then what happened after that was just sort of a you know series of sort of small unplanned journeys so what I really wanted to do when I was studying in India was to was to study in Oxford because I visited Oxford and I thought that was an absolutely fantastic mm -hmm. place where you can think you know big deep thoughts uh, and you know really sort of uh, uh, you know absorb and learn like like nowhere else um, so I, I got into Oxford uh, while I was still doing my undergraduate degree, but I didn't have funding. Uh, so I waited a year, I worked in India, and then the next year I got a full scholarship. So that's how I landed up in the UK and uh, after Oxford went to Clifford Chance. Um, started off life as a securities lawyer, doing debt and equity capital markets. Uh, but then just got a little bit of itchy feet about uh, you know being so far out west. Uh, wanted to sort of be in Asia, but not really quite ready to move back to India. So Singapore was a great halfway house. And then it's um, while being in Singapore that I really became a more sort of multi-practice lawyer as well. Uh, I think, you know, in Singapore, you just don't have as siloed practices as you have 
uh, with big international uh, firms in in their H in their HQs. So uh, at Linklaters in Singapore, then with O'Melveny, I started doing not just securities but also debt restructuring and finance more generally. And then, you know, that sort of uh, made life a bit more exciting. But then I just got a little bit. Um, uh, I, I just sort of felt like it was time for a change from being in these very large law firms that I'd been in all my life. Uh, I mean, of course, they give you great platforms, but you know, just being in large organizations comes with its trappings. So I almost stumbled upon my current firm, uh, GLS Law, right at the time that I was going through this conundrum. And GLS itself is an innovator legal services firm. It's all about offering legal services in a fresh, innovative way. And so that seemed like a great platform in which I could sort of park and build my practice um, and you know just sort of offer legal services of the same quality but in a different way. So now it's been two and a half years at GLS and I've uh, you know managed to sort of achieve uh, what I wanted to do. So I've now added on general corporate, commercial, um, blockchain uh, advisory, you know, to the other hats that I was already wearing. Um, and of course, I also am sort of, you know, master of my own destiny, even yeah. while being within the GLS platform, which, you know, as, as a fellow entrepreneur, you know, it's just a, it's just a fantastic feeling. Yeah. So I get involved in, you know, other things that interest me as well, uh, which just makes life interesting. Amazing, amazing. That that's that's quite a journey. Yes. <laughs> yes uh, so so, what does GLS do? Where where is it based in India, and uh, uh, what is the structure? How are you representing it in Singapore? Sure. So so GLS is actually um, headquartered in Singapore. So it's a it's a very unique international law firm. I think it might even be one of the few international law firms of its size that's actually headquartered here and not in you know New York or London. And it was set up by these former partners at uh, DLA Piper. Um, who just got a uh, little bit jaded with big law as well, same as I did. And actually, they were technology lawyers. So, you know, I think they were really front and center of innovation uh, on a daily basis. And then that made them realize all the more how innovation is often missing in legal services, which is a very traditional industry. So they set up GLS from the ground up to be this, you know, disruptor uh, legal services firm about five years ago. And then I joined them, you know, two and a half years ago um, as part of the build out into the finance practice. So I um, sort of function as their de facto head of their global uh, finance practice as well. Uh, and we are particularly active in, in, in Southeast Asia through Singapore and also in the Middle East through our, uh, through our supplementary headquarters in Dubai. So, so the focus is all technology practice only or? or, or no, it's, it's full service. It's full service. Uh, so we do finance, corporate, commercial, we don't do litigation. And then, uh, actually, strangely enough, I think I end up doing more technology work than the founders these yeah. days, mm -hmm. just because you know I'm I'm sort of under the hood of this uh, blockchain economy. Yeah. Um, but it's been sort of great to partner with them in terms of combining their you know purest technology expertise and my finance expertise into some of the novel things that we've done. Yeah. You you spoke about Oxford and the network there. I uh, I was uh, recently speaking with a few few a bunch of friends and. And one thing I realized in life that the network that you make in these Ivy League colleges, right. be it in India, be it in Howard or Oxford or Wharton or whatsoever, is is very special and, and actually carries a lot of weight in your life. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think it becomes kind of a, a goal to get our kids to right. uh, that Ivy colleges to, to, to actually end up having a good life. Right. So what was your experience uh, while, while studying at Oxford? What did you like? What did you dislike? 
Right, right. So I think, um, you know, I, I I went to, fortunately, one of the top uh, universities in India, but, you know, honestly, it's not a patch on the level of uh, educational grounding you get at a place like Oxford. You really uh, deep dive not just into you know legal subjects, but they also force you into critical analytical thinking, which you know the Indian education system isn't really renowned for. So I think that's just sort of a general life skill set, which is great. And then also, of course, there's this absolutely wonderful ecosystem uh, that you build from across the globe. And that was my first experience of that. You know, there's really smart lawyers from across the globe who are there who you get to bounce off ideas with and who remain your friends and contacts and source of referrals, you know, for, for forevermore. Um, but interestingly, talking about that, what I, uh, about the networking effect, what I would say is that um, I wish I had done more of that and realized, you know, at a much younger age, the value of, you know, doing focused networking. I think, again, this is uh, a little bit of a challenge in the legal services industry in particular. Ultimately, as you go through the ranks, you have to be a business generator. But the training that you have for 80% of your legal career isn't geared towards that at all. Mm. You know, so I think, um, luckily or unluckily, you know, I'm quite a sort of, social extroverted person so business development hasn't been hard for me but then you know there are a lot of lawyers who are just not equipped to make that transition easily so I think um, you know particularly for lawyers but I think particularly for anybody in the new age world that we're going to live in in 10 years time I think it's really important to start building a network you know as early as possible yeah you 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 mentioned uh uh, that the founders come from a technology background, and uh, recently I've been I've been interacting with uh, Atrium, right? Uh, uh, the San Francisco yes. uh, technology law firm, or right. tech-based law firm. Yes. And um, I, I've actually got a chance to go through some of the stuff that they have, and and spoken to to few of the team members. Is is GLS or uh, any other law firms that you know in in this part of the world also looking at such innovative tech uh, to provide law help? Right. So I mean, I think um, I would say that when we started off, we were probably one of the few. Now we're certainly one of the many. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a couple of observations that I would make, I think. Um, with several of the larger firms, and I've been at those larger firms myself, I think just being sort of having a legal tech or an innovation department is just something that seems to be, you know, required for a marketing brochure Mm. and not necessarily backed by actual innovation. And also that's just because in a large organization, innovation is challenging. Um, You know, you you can do it much more easily if you build a platform from the ground up like, like GLS did. So there's that sort of window dressing to innovation, which I think a lot of firms do. And secondly, um, you know, we don't have a, a, a presence in the U.S. That's one of the sort of missing uh, uh, tools in our armory. But I, I do believe that genuinely there's nobody who has the full suite of legal innovation under one umbrella like GLS does. So, you know, some do legal tech, some do manpower, some do AI-based reviews, and some do a disruptive law firm. In GLS, under the GLS group, we have it all. So we're kind of like an Amazon of uh, you know legal services. Depending on your risk appetite and your budget, um, you can choose you know whether you want just a solution or a lawyer or the law firm. So that I don't think we genuinely have any peer uh, for that. But do you think that uh, 
firms like Atrium are the future of legal profession, and there could be a similar firm that could be very successful here in this part of the world? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, whether we like it or not, the winds of change are coming to the legal services industry, just like any other services industry. Mm. We've just been a little bit lucky in that we've managed to insulate ourselves from the headwinds by saying, you know, we're sort of special and, you know, you need to pay us lots of money to advise you on very simple things. But I think, you know, um, just the march of technology across services is, I think, making it clear that that's, that's not really... Um, the, the correct, the approach that we're taking. A lot of things can, in fact, be commoditized. There's obviously always going to be a role for the trusted advisor who's going to be a real human being, which is not going to be a smart contract, it's not going to be a legal tech solution, but the, the universe where that's going to be really needed is actually much smaller than what exists today. So yeah. everybody will have to every legal services firm will have to disrupt and innovate hmm. in some way if they want to remain relevant. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. So, so tell us more about uh, how, how, how did you uh, enter blockchain? Uh, how did you learn about blockchain in the last couple of years? What do you see uh, has changed or, or, or drastically changed in, in this industry in your experience? Sure, sure. Um, so I have to frankly confess that being uh, a fairly traditional uh, and um, you know luddite lawyer mm. <laughs> for uh, for the most part of my life, I was uh, I, I did sort of sit out a lot of the buzz around blockchain and crypto in the beginning. I was I was too scared. I remember, in fact, my founder uh, came to me and said, you know there's all this noise about ICOs, why don't you look into it? And I was like, oh my God, this is just too big and scary and I wouldn't understand it and no. So, you know, famous last words. So, it's just that the, the noise around this was just too big to ignore um, and we were just getting so many inquiries on ICOs and other um, blockchain transactions because of our tech credentials as a firm that uh, we just felt we couldn't sort of sit it out. So, started off uh, doing a few ICOs, uh, and again in collaboration with our uh, with my founders who are technology guys. So that was um, that was sort of really interesting. I think that what sort of uh, that's when the bug, so to speak, hit me, where where you realize that separate from anything else, this space gives you uh, this sector gives you the space to be innovative as a lawyer. You know, you're kind of putting together documents which have no template. Uh, you sort of mixing together different kinds of precedents and applying your own sort of smell test to come up with something that really works uh, for your client and recognizing that often in the cryptocurrency space in particular there isn't a bulletproof way to stay out of trouble there just isn't but there are ways and means to really help mitigate that risk so that's what i think really got uh, got my intellectual uh, got me intellectually excited in this space and then we actually went on to do what was genuinely a first-of-its-kind transaction, which was, um, I can't take its name, but an art tokenization project uh, where you know we created a legal structure whereby um, the capital appreciation around a piece of art was made available to a group of crowdfunded investors through uh, a tokenized offering. And again, I like to think that had this deal landed on the desk of many other lawyers in the city, it would have not seen light of day. But... Uh, I was able to sort of deconstruct it into what is nothing but its capital markets element and then we helped sort of get that transaction off the finish line. So that then really, you know, got me, um, 
uh, fully hooked onto the space. Yeah. Um, so ICOs, SQs, and then since then it's just been a wave of general blockchain advisory projects, uh, you know, across the board. So you do, you've advised on ICOs, you've advised on STOs and yes. continue to do so. And uh, you are also uh, helping other blockchain companies. Uh, what are the other things that you do? I think I'm sure our audience would like to know and connect with you uh, for, for any help. Um, so I think just to break down what I've sort of done in the and what I do in the blockchain space uh, in particular. So one is just uh, helping regular blockchain startups with anything from their equity investment to their commercial contracts to their other day-to-day -day business needs, which is the same needs of any startup, mm -hmm. right? But of course, at JLS, we have a, uh, much more cost-effective solutions than the average law firm, so that's one. Um, then uh, ICOs, STOs, you know, been there, done that. STOs, um, off late, we've seen a lot of interest around uh, tokenized funds. So we've got one uh, project going on, another one in the works. Um, and also continuing interest around asset-linked STOs, similar to the artwork one that we did, but those have a long gestation time. I mean, artwork is still relatively easy. It's sort of a relatively sim simple asset to kind of ring fence into a corporate structure. But the more you get into a real-world asset, the more real-world structuring is involved, which involves you know, foreign investment rules, tax rules. So it just takes time to figure out an appropriate structure for that. So that's sort of the second type of uh, work that I have done and can do. And then thirdly, I would say just sort of general um, blockchain, uh, well, general uh, hand-holding and advisory for blockchain-enabled businesses. So say, um, you know, there's sort of new kinds of blockchain uh, enabled activities that that people want to carry. So for example, just three days ago, somebody asked me which is the best jurisdiction to set up a staking business. So that's something I'm you know trying to help them figure out. Mm -hmm. Then digital asset exchanges, of course, particularly with the PS Act now uh, going to come into effect. Uh, evergreen question, you know, which is the best jurisdiction to um, get licensed as a digital asset exchange or remain unlicensed and also just practical questions around what is uh, what can one do to sort of avoid uh, getting into trouble with the regulators which again isn't a there isn't a bulletproof answer to but you know i think now there's sort of been enough noise around that from regulators to figure out some sort of risk mitigation path um, so lots of you know free-ranging queries you know, under that blockchain space, yeah. as I call it. So with, with the upcoming uh, Payment Services Act, PSA, as they're calling it, um, what is the best jurisdiction to set up a business <laughs> or, or stay? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to have to save that answer for a paid engagement. <laughs> but what I will say is that certainly, obviously, um, you know, with the PSA Act coming into uh, effect, Singapore is... You know, certainly among the top few jurisdictions that one should consider. Um, you know, there's no other, I think, first world country of Singapore's caliber that has put in place this kind of uh, really bespoke uh, regime. I mean, minus Switzerland, of course, I suppose, um, and sort of thrown its weight behind it with a view to becoming this sort of, you know, blockchain fintech. Uh, crypto hub, so to speak. Um, but I think, uh, again, it's important to distinguish between the legal and the practical. Uh, and this is the advice that I give clients who, uh, who uh, approach us as well. I mean, 
if you're going to be a regulated entity in Singapore, it's not for the faint-hearted, right? Effectively, no. under the Payment Services Act, you're going to need to have a compliance architecture which is akin to that of a traditional financial institution. It's going to be expensive. There's going to be some education exercise involved with the regulator. And all of that is going to take time and money and require patience. And I've dealt uh, with the MAS uh, you know, in, in, a, in a traditional finance uh, context where we've tried to get uh, sort of first of its kind uh, capital markets deals across the line. And there was a huge team that we had in place with us and Singapore Council and you know, two other councils. And just again, it was, it was a similar uh, sort of journey that we had to go through. You know, and that was in the traditional space where what we were doing was not even as novel as what Singapore is now proposing to do under the PSI. So again, I think it's great if you are able to get licensed in Singapore, no doubt about it, but I think just don't underestimate the journey that will be involved in getting there. And, and, and just to add to that, my two pence worth is that um, we, are, we, we live in a practical world and blockchain as a mass adoption that we were discussing earlier, B2B, B2C, or, or general enterprise uh, uh, is, is not yet there mm. in, in practical terms. Right. And which means you, you for the foreseeable future, five, ten years, you still have to abide by the regulations unless, right. unless you are envisaging a decentralized world, which uh, not in my lifetime totally. Right. Right. Uh, so, and which, which means that Clarity of regulation is good. Right. Otherwise, you have a sword hanging on your head all the time. Right. Which way to go? Where to go? Which jurisdiction? Which regulation? Etc. Etc. And and you are absolutely right that Singapore, as a advanced developed economy, has taken that tear step. Mm. That this is what it is, and they continue to come with other sandboxes and sandbox Correct. expresses and consultation papers yes. that that we we are already looking at the next thing that you want. Absolutely. So, 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 absolutely. I think, I think it's actually a good thing. Right. No, absolutely, right. absolutely. I think they've taken a great leap forward uh, in terms of endorsing uh, crypto businesses as inherently legitimate. You know, I mean, of course, licensing will still be subject to their constraints, but I think just the in principle approach that they've taken uh, will be is, is a great thing, and I think it will also serve to. Um, educate other regulators. As we know, other regulators in Asia have just taken a sort of really, um, you know, knee-jerk, black-and-white dislike to mm. anything crypto. So I think Singapore that way can be a great uh, sort of trendsetter as well, uh, particularly in this part of the world. Yeah. Have you? Have you? Uh, uh, or, or I should say, are you seeing a lot of uh, STOs or security tokens being issued uh, in Singapore or in this region? Um, in Singapore, I think um, not um, much interest of uh, in the recent past. I think that's also because you know the way uh, that I understand from my Singapore lawyer friends, the PS Act is drafted. It's it's very overarching. So even some activities which aren't perhaps intended to be covered by the PS Act uh, could potentially be covered until there's you know more of a precedent in terms of how the Act is going to be interpreted in practice. So I think. Um, there's been a little bit of watch and wait approach uh, in terms of you know token related uh, fundraisings out of Singapore. I think ever since the PS Act has come out, mm. um, what we have seen actually is a lot of interest uh, recently in uh, a, a, for STOs in particular uh, ADGM, 
which of course has this bespoke regime uh, for, for issuing uh, STO licenses. And then, of course, uh, you know, I've always been a fan of uh, jurisdictions just, you know, came in BVI, which don't have a bespoke uh, legal regime for cryptocurrency or for blockchain, but that sometimes isn't a bad thing. Uh, because otherwise you could easily fall into the kind of trap that Malta has, where you have this sort of you know, high-profile bespoke law for crypto and blockchain. But actually, if you peel back the layers, the actual licenses given under that are hardly any, if at all. You know? yeah. So that's what. Sometimes I think being unregulated while still being compliant is better than being regulated at a time when there's regulatory uncertainty. Mm. So, so you said you you were working on some security tokens or worked in the past. Uh, if not Singapore, where are these tokens coming from? Where are the companies registered uh, outside Cayman, if any? Um, so um, the actual founders are sort of based everywhere. You know, yeah. we've seen interest from everywhere, from elsewhere in Southeast Asia to um, to to the U.S. Uh, but in terms of uh, the token issuing vehicles, um, you know. I think it's been Cayman, uh, BVI, um, ADGM. Um, we have had um, clients look to set up in the less reputable, uh, certain less reputable uh, jurisdictions as well um, in Asia. Uh, I won't take names, which have so-called free zones, which allow them to yeah. uh, to, to set up. I, I wouldn't uh, recommend that. And then the other favorite jurisdiction, obviously, is Eastern Europe. You know where um, you can, in, for certain types of uh, activities, get licenses uh, fairly easily, and then the the hope is to kind of use that for passporting across Europe. But again, um, you know, none of these jurisdictions really um, have been able to sort of build up that track record in terms of you know the international blockchain community really seeing them as a as a trusted go-to jurisdiction for everything that they want to do. It's all still a little bit ad hoc, it's all still a little bit uh, unsettled, uh, and often there just isn't even enough public information out there on what really you need to do to get licensed in these jurisdictions. You have to really sort of you know, poke and pry and find through your contacts what needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, ha have you seen these, these security tokens actually raise money? Yes, absolutely. Our art project raised money. We've done a few projects after that which have raised money. But I will be honest that they've been uh, the ones that we've done have been fairly small transactions. They're not your sort of uh, you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of financing. And the ones that we're doing now, uh, for example, the fund tokenization, I think they've taken a very pragmatic approach. They're going for a almost a year, year and a half long marketing test the waters exercise. Uh, which they will use to not only uh, reach out to a broader network of investors, but also, and I think this is the interesting thing about tokenization, also to uh, have more uh, space to kind of tweak the economics around the token to adjust to investor preferences. So I think this is perhaps one of the true uh, uh, sort of manifestations of the disintermediation that we all uh, like to sort of talk about, right? Because you don't have the traditional players, such as traditional investment banks, 
or traditional law firms, there's more of an opportunity to go back to the basics in terms of how you rejig the economics of these instruments. Yeah. So these guys are building in the space to do that, which some would say is the real benefit of the token economy. Yeah. Well. yeah. And, and uh, 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 you know, in the end, where do these security tokens list? Or have you seen any exchanges where any of your clients or, or other tokens get listed? Yeah, I mean, I know that there are some uh, that are operating, but they are all uh, unlicensed and, uh, you know, not with the most stellar reputations. Uh, but I think um, I think it will take, you know, at least six months to a year before we have, you know, fully uh, legitimate, uh, registered and licensed security token exchanges, um, which also are okay with taking tokens that accept both fiat and crypto. Hmm. So of course you have something like, say, the iStocks platform in Singapore, right? But they very clearly said only fiat, no crypto. Um, and again, as a Singapore uh, business, um, I suspect they'll attract the most of institutional uh, issuers. Um, so I think if, if you're an average startup looking for flex in terms of fundraising and you want to do an STO, rather than an equity raise uh, and list that on a token exchange. I think you'd have to wait until there is uh, an exchange which has the requisite reputation and standing and is also licensed and therefore gives confidence to investors as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as we stand today under the RMO, under the sandbox, you can only do accredited investors. Right, right. So, so which, which means there cannot be hardly there will be hardly any liquidity right, uh, right. yet right. Uh, but but things are changing things are coming and then I know new firms and new players are coming in um, let's let's move on to my favorite round which right. is the rapid fire round sure uh, uh, which is uh, basically to scare my guests right uh, uh, and and ask the most difficult questions right. about life and and uh, what you guys right. uh, have learned uh, Across your entire career, right, right. Uh, so, so ready? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Excellent. Uh, let's start. So, what's your favorite book and why? Hmm. Um, so, it might seem cliche, but I do really like uh, *Lean In* by Sheryl Sandberg. Um, you know, uh, gender addressing gender inequality in professional services firm is something that I'm just close to, um, and which I sort of try and promote outside of work as well. So I think that's just been a real, that book has been a real uh, game changer in terms of providing a new reference frame uh, to tackle that. Great, great. Um, lean in. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I bought it, but I have not yet gone through right. it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's down in the priority list. Right, yeah. right. But, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll push it up. Yes. Uh, if you could have dinner or, or spend time with three people, dead or alive, uh, who would they be? Hmm. Um, certainly, um, let's see. I think... Um, Bill Gates, you know, um, I mean, there's a guy who's, I mean, like many tech leaders, you know, drop out and then, you know, made a, such a huge success story. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, I think also I'd like to have dinner with uh, uh, Ariana Huffington, oh. again, female uh, entrepreneur, also thought leader, um, 
in her own right. And then, um, who else? Um, I'm trying to think of any lawyers, but inspiration fails me. <laughs> um, I think um, um, I think I'll choose another sort of practically self-made female entrepreneur, which is uh, you know Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Um, because it's not only is she a female entrepreneur, but just how to sort of build this PR machine, um, you know, literally out of thin air, yeah. uh, and and make it work for you and leverage it for your business. I think she's she's been very good at that. Absolutely. You know, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the uh, Netflix documentary about Bill Gates, uh, right. which recently came out. It's it's amazing uh, how how. Uh, two childhood friends grew and crazily worked hard. It was not right. an easy journey. Right. Uh, how they learned life, like all of us, and right. and, and it's it's a, it's, a, it's a must watch. Right. And same, there was an article about uh, Ariana Huffington and uh, how she took over the Huffington right. Post and, right. and and how you know Jeff Bezos came in, etc. Right. Et right. There was a a good one. So. Your favorite blockchain company or blockchain person? My favorite blockchain person. Hmm. Who is my favorite? Besides me, of course. <laughs> of course, <laughs> and me. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Um, blockchain person. Um, Yeah, inspiration just fails me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's all right. Any any company that comes to mind that that you really admire? Um, company that comes to mind. I mean, um, I think. Uh, well, I think there's no particular one. I think a lot of these blockchain startups that I've worked with uh, have been just really inspirational. You know, they some of them got into crypto and blockchain when you know. It hadn't even entered any of our vocabularies, and they've gone on to sort of build such successful businesses from the ground up, and are you know, heading for early retirement? Yeah. While uh, most of us are just sort of figuring it out. So um, I think several such inspirational folks that I've met. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Um, who else should we invite on Hashtalk? Um, who else? Should I? Well, I can um, suggest. Several folks actually, um, uh, actually two women that I can think of sure. again, promoting women in tech. Uh, one is uh, Tuhina Singh, you mm -hmm. know, founder. Yeah, of, we, we are in touch. Yeah, great. Yeah, founder yeah. of Propine. I mean, yeah. what an awesome lady. Yeah, um, Alice Chen, Investor yeah. Crowd. Again, you know. I, I've never met Alice because uh, mostly, you know, I've, I've been uh, in touch with uh, a co-founder. Uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, sure. Uh, uh, great. I will. I'll definitely uh, reach out to them. Yes. Yes. Great. Bitcoin price June twenty twenty. Right. And what is the long term price? And this is not an investment advice for sure. <laughs> well, um, it's tough to ask a lawyer these questions. Right? Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, well, I think, um, and again, this sort of goes to legal and regulatory trends as well. I think. Uh, Bitcoin and all crypto is very much going to be in the regulatory crosshairs for some time. Uh, I think uh, you know US SEC is still very focused on you know proving that it's got the long arm of the law yeah. to, to bring everyone to task. And it's also um, this whole sort of debate around Facebook and Libra coin has 
perhaps helped bring it to the mainstream, but also brought in a bit of unwelcome attention for the time being. So I'm not really very bullish uh, on Bitcoin prices, you know, in in the short term. But of course, long term, hopefully, you know, it will uh, recover and become mainstream, which is good news for all of us who sort of invested in this blockchain economy, either directly or indirectly. I I love contrarian answers <laughs> because everybody who comes is like fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, and and uh, and this this is definitely a contradicting. A viewpoint and, and with logic, right? Uh, so let's see. I'm, right. I'm not yeah, commenting. I'm, I'm a, uh, <laughs> lawyers tend to be more doomsday than yeah. average. So. <laughs> it's a, it's good to have. Uh, what's the most important thing that you've learned in life? Uh, what was your life before that, and what is your life after learning that particular thing? Um. So I think what I've really learned is to be. Uh, you know, really flexible. Again, if just looking at the example I gave earlier, you know, oh, I won't do ICOs, I'm too scared. Had I not said that, you know, I would have been a lawyer in the ICO boom, yeah. <laughs> uh, as opposed to being an IPO in the uh, lawyer in the ICO bus. But luckily, in the STO boom. Yeah. So, um, and you know, here I am not doing everything anyway. So I think just uh, uh, be flexible, and you know, you can always do more than you think you can. Yeah. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. Uh, I, I think I think all of us have that element. All of us, be it uh, even if once we have even been successful, we still fake it till till we make it right. more and more. Right. Right. Um, one thing that that you think you could do more of. One thing that you're missing and you want to do more and more of. Um. Well, I could certainly do more writing. You know, I mean, there's just. I think I. I I genuinely feel I have a great vantage point into both the traditional and the new age world. So there are a lot of things I'd like to say, to uh, observe, you know, things that digital finance can fix from the traditional world and vice versa. Uh, it's just only so many hours in the day. Yeah. So I think actually this podcast is great because this is sort of a uh, low time intensive way to share what's already in my head Absolutely. but being a to the traditional lawyer I want to sort of sit and write these things yeah. as well yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. so so I, I for me it's it's a, a selfish learning from uh, different walks of life uh, I, I think I think I learn a lot doing these things and then uh, try to apply that knowledge into into the work that I do right uh, who's a favorite regulator besides MS and you I know you work you work with a lot of them. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, well, I might get killed for this, but I do actually uh, like the US regulators because yeah. they take very extreme views, but they take very clear views. You know, there's um, there's li very little gray in, in views that they come out with, so it just reduces the uncertainty risk because, uh, and that just obviously provides comfort to investors and just helps, is better for the ecosystem on the whole. And just as a traditional capital market lawyer, we've always sort of looked at, at the SEC as sort of the bellwether in terms of writing regulation and even figuring out what needs to be regulated before other regulators are able to do that. Yeah. Um, so I still sort of like to, you know, uh, see what they do as a good uh, reference point, you know, to learn about what's going to be the next sort of hot topic in regulation. Mm. And also at least have a framework on what is good regulation. Again, not endorsing all their views on crypto in particular, but just a good reference frame. 
amazing. Pooja, this this was definitely uh, one of the favorite uh, episodes that we have recorded. And uh, I love talking to you, learning from you, and the knowledge that you have, uh, uh, and then how you've, you've uh, pivoted from, uh, not pivoted really, how you have uh, grown from a traditional as well to, to a modern latest tech, tech lawyer. Right. Uh, so, so very good to have you, and thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks.